I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, let's pray. God, we come before you now and ask for your help as we look at this part of the scripture. Lord, this is an interesting text, an unusual text, but also a very relevant one. And so we do pray that you would be at work here among us in your spirit to help us not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word as well, and that you would be at work changing us into the image of Jesus. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Conflict and disagreement. Conflict and disagreement are a part of all of our lives. They are commonplace. How do you handle disagreements in your own life? That's a rhetorical question. Just think about it on the inside. Most of us, you know, we've probably all heard, most of us tend either towards flight, we run away from conflict, we run away from disagreement, or fight. We run towards conflict and towards disagreement like a bulldozer devouring anything in its path. How do you handle conflict? How do you handle the inevitable disagreements that are going to come up in your life with your family, with your employees or employers, with friends, with new relationships or old relationships? That's an important issue in all of our lives, and it's an important issue to God as well. God cares about the way we manage and handle disagreements. And here's the good news. Disagreements actually provide each one of us opportunities. They provide us opportunities to showcase the truth of the gospel of Jesus, to showcase, if you're a Christian, what you claim to believe about God and about the world and about your relationship with him. And that's what Paul's writing about here in these verses in Philippians. Throughout this letter, he's been writing a lot about unity, about overcoming divisiveness and infighting. That's one of the primary concerns of the letter. It's something that was happening in this young church plant in Philippi that he had started. And you'll see throughout the letter, if you read back through it, that he's written about unity multiple times. For example, in chapter one, he said, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side. And then in chapter two, he said, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So he's written a lot about this theological concept of unity, of agreement, of partnership together in the gospel. Now what he does is he applies that theological concept to a particular situation that this Philippian church was dealing with at the time he wrote this letter, around 55 AD or so. And it's really interesting to read Paul's instructions to this young church that he had planted And it's interesting because this is a passage that you might just kind of read over if you're reading through Philippians in your own Bible reading, but it's been used by the Holy Spirit for generations to help us learn how to deal with disagreements. And so with that in mind, here's the main idea of these verses from Philippians 4. Very simple. The gospel changes the way we handle disagreements. The gospel changes the way we handle disagreements. 
I want to break that into two parts as we look at these verses together and seek to apply them this morning. First, let's look at the problem, the problem of disruptive disagreements. That's what we read about there in verses 2 and 3. These two verses are, they're truly unique in all of the letters of Paul in the New Testament. And I wonder if you know what makes them unique. These verses are unique because it's the only place in the whole Bible where Paul addresses a personal dispute or a personal disagreement that was going on in one of the churches that he had planted, and he names names. You see that there? He says, I urge or entreat Euodia and Syntyche to agree, to agree. Now, he names names in other parts of the Bible, but that's when he's fighting against heresy or doctrinal misalignment. This is the only place where there's an issue of disagreement in the church and Paul calls people out. Now, think about this with me. When this letter was first written, Epaphroditus gets it from Paul, who's in jail in Rome, and he takes it back to Philippi in Macedonia, northern Greece, and it would have been read on a Sunday morning in their gathered worship, just like we're gathered this morning. Now imagine you get up, you're in first century Philippi, you've been converted to this new Christian idea, and you get up, you get your kids ready, there might be a little bit of issues with your uh, irritability already in the morning, and you, you go to church, you show up five minutes late, I'm sure that happened in Philippi, not that that ever happens here, but it happened in Philippi, I'm sure, and uh, you sit down, and you hear that you've received a letter, the church has received a letter from the Apostle Paul, the man who had planted this church, and it's going to be read and, and you listen to Paul read, or to Epaphroditus or some leader in the church read this whole letter to the church. It would have taken about 15 minutes. And as you're listening, I want you to just put yourself there. You go through the very high highs of Philippians, right? And the Holy Spirit is piercing your heart as a hearer of the good news. You think about Paul. And you remember your affection for him. You remember how your life has been transformed by this message of Jesus's death and burial and resurrection. And you remember what a joy it is to have a family of other believers to watch your back and vice versa. So you've ridden the crest of the wave of Philippians and then the reader gets to chapter four, verse one. And he reads out loud. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia. Euodia is over here. And I entreat Syntyche. Syntyche's over here. To agree. To agree in the Lord. Think about that. That could have gotten a little tense. A little awkward. They're on your Sunday morning gathering. You know what you're going to be talking about at lunch, after church, right? Euodia. Syntyche. Paul calls them out and names them. And the reason, the reason that Paul addresses this publicly is because he knew what we should know. And that's this. Disagreement has to be dealt with because disruptive disagreement among Christians damages gospel witness and it damages gospel friendship. Disagreement and conflict cannot be left in the dark because it's like mold. It grows and festers when it's hidden. It grows in the dark. Disruptive disagreements, conflict, hurt feelings, harsh words that have been said, wounded relationships among brothers and sisters in Jesus must be dealt with. So Paul takes the lead here. Let's ask a couple of questions about what's going on. Who is in disagreement 
That's the first question. Well, we've already seen it. Euodia and Syntyche. These are two female leaders in the church in Philippi. And just as a side note, there were female leaders. They had authority. They had leadership roles in the church. And they have obviously been leaders because Paul says in verse 3 that they labored side by side in the gospel with him. And so there's an issue between these two women and They've been with Paul for a long time. They were probably a part of the core team of the church plant of Philippi. This church probably met in the household of Lydia, who you can read about in Acts 16. Lydia had a clothing business. It was like a first century Etsy shop or something like that, I would imagine. She made clothes and sold clothes. She had become very wealthy. The church probably met in her house. Maybe Euodia and Syntyche are friends with Lydia. They've been there from the very beginning, so to speak. Everybody knows Euodia and Syntyche. And everyone also knows about their conflict. Everyone knows about their estrangement. It's a public dispute. It's a public dispute among leaders, among people who have some sort of cultural say in this church. And so it's rupturing the church and it's festering to a large enough degree that Paul brings it up in the letter. So that's who's disagreeing. Now, why? Why are they in disagreement? Well, the short answer is we don't know. We don't know exactly what the issue was. We do know that it's not theological. Or let me put it this way. It's not doctrinal heresy or false teaching that they're disagreeing about. How do we know that? Well, we know for one, because Paul in verse 3 says that They labor side by side in the gospel and that their names are written in the book of life. That's not the kind of thing Paul typically says about heretics. If you know Paul's letters, he's pretty straightforward saying you need to repent or you're out basically. But that's not what he says here. So it's not a gospel issue. We also know that because Paul doesn't take sides. If you notice that anytime there's an issue with false teaching, Paul is going to say this teaching is wrong. This teaching is right. You need to get right. For example, In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says this to Timothy, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him. He is strongly opposed to your message. That's how Paul handles false teaching. In Galatians 2, when Peter, the apostle Peter, has fallen into a little bit of false gospel living, Paul calls Peter out and says, your conduct is not in line with the gospel. But that's not what he does here. So this isn't a doctrinal issue. It's not first-level theological. Euodia and Syntyche are disagreeing about an inessential issue. Maybe it was parenting styles. Maybe it was how to run a children's ministry. Maybe it was about a personal habit that had been addressed poorly. We don't know. But here's the point. The cause of disagreement isn't as important as the process of resolving the disagreement. Now, this part of Philippians reminds us of something important, and that is this. Disagreement is commonplace. I don't mean a momentary difference of opinion. Like, my lovely wife didn't want to watch Stranger Things 2, but I thought it was really good. Momentary difference of opinion. Is Whataburger better than In-N-Out? Yes, by the way. I mean, that shouldn't be a disagreement on that. Momentary disagreement. Um... Is the movie Interstellar a good movie or a bad movie? Bad movie. Not worth disagreeing about. 
our church small group almost split over that issue, by the way. So that's why I bring that up. Joking, we didn't really almost split. Those are momentary disagreements, right? What Paul's talking about here is a disagreement that causes ongoing damage of fellowship with the person with whom you disagree. Is that going on in your life? Thank you. I'm glad. If you're a Christian, (laughs) that was awesome. If you're a Christian, are there other Christians that you don't really talk to anymore? Or that you sort of try to ignore or avoid because you know, you know that you're going to disagree about politics or worship style or public schooling versus homeschooling or whatever your hot button issue is? Are you working to convince others in your life or in your church that this person is wrong about one of those topics and sort of maybe even subconsciously creating your own little faction in the church? Have you broken fellowship with someone over an issue that is not the gospel? You just happen to feel really passionate about it. That was Euodia and Syntyche. That was Philippi. And listen, that is oftentimes us. And here's the thing, that is problematic. That's what the Spirit wants us to see. That's what we need to believe. Why is it problematic? Why are these sort of disruptive disagreements an issue? Here's the main reason why. It's not because they make you feel bad or awkward. Disruptive disagreements are a problem because they misrepresent to the world what God is really like. They misrepresent the truth that we say we believe. Remember what Paul has written earlier in this letter, in chapter 2? He said that God is humble. God, chapter 2, verse 4, doesn't act out of rivalry or conceit. God pursues forgiveness and reconciliation. God doesn't allow disagreement to fester between he and us. Rather, he comes and restores us. So when we persist in disagreement and conflict with each other, we are showing God to be something he is not. We are bearing false witness about who God really is. All of our grudges and unresolved conflicts, all of our disagreements that aren't dealt with, inevitably show what we really think of God. No matter what we say. Those show what we think. And furthermore, God is on the mission of taking different and diverse people who have all kinds of different backgrounds and opinions on various important subjects and different personalities and different life experiences and making them one new people in Jesus Christ. That's what the church is. And so our unresolved conflicts and our disruptive disagreements They take us back in a real way to like a pre-Jesus era relationally. They are a direct contradiction to what we say God has done in our lives and to what we say God is doing among us as one people. Disruptive disagreements damage gospel witness. They damage gospel friendship. They show that we don't really believe what we claim to believe about God, at least not in that moment, or about God's people. That's why Paul brings it up. It's that significant. It's significant because it's a direct contradiction to the light and the truth of the gospel. So disruptive disagreements are a problem. First point. Second point, let's see how Paul encourages us and how he himself addresses the issue. Second, I want to look at the practice 
the practice of reconciliation. And what we see here is Paul move Euodia and Syntyche and the Philippian church towards reconciliation. And that is the way in which we are to handle disagreements and broken relationships. We move forward in reconciliation in the power of the Holy Spirit by faith. Let me show you quickly four things that Paul does to encourage reconciliation and to practice reconciliation. All right, stay with me. Four things, then we'll wrap it up. First, Paul, notice, as a leader, is very even-handed and balanced with both of these women. I want you to notice a very technical linguistic thing. Verse 2, notice that verb entreat is used twice. You see that? I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche. Now that's redundant. He doesn't have to use that verb twice, so why does he do it? He does it because he wants to be balanced, even-handed, and fair. You need to squash your beef, Euodia. You need to squash your beef, Syntyche. Both of you are responsible to move forward in relationship. Notice that Paul doesn't rebuke one of these two women really harshly and go easy on the other one. He doesn't play favorites. He calls them both to their mutual responsibility to move past their issue. Paul's saying, listen, ladies, listen, church, there's something more important, much more important here than your squabble. And that is the mission of God in Philippi. So it's time to move forward, squash your beef, get into the mission again. He's even-handed and balanced with them. It's one way we as leaders and as those who experience disruptive disagreement are to pursue it. Second, Paul calls for a mediator. Look in verse 3. He entreats them to agree, verse 2, then verse 3. Yes, I ask you also, true companion. Now he's addressing some person there. Again, we don't know who it is but it's someone in the church. It might be Epaphroditus himself who's carrying this letter from Rome back to the church. It's likely some kind of leader in the church in Philippi. And he says to them, this leader, true companion is what he calls him or her, help these women, help them who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers. So Paul knows that sometimes people in a dispute need a mediator. They need help. And just, that's also true for us, right? Um, if you're in conflict or disagreement with someone that's disrupting fellowship, it's not Whataburger versus in and out it's disruptive. And you try to work it out. You try to do the right thing. You try to talk it out. You try to sort it out. And maybe it gets worse. Maybe it's more awkward. Maybe it's more painful. Maybe you feel more and more the tendency to avoid them. If that's where you are, then you probably need a mediator. And, and that's what Paul's calling for here. He's calling for these women who maybe have had a situation where the more they've talked, the worse the problem has become. They've tried to sort it out, but they haven't been able to get into it. And there's more gossip and there's more hurt and there's more bitterness and there's more frustration and division. And so Paul says, true companion, help them, help them. We need a godly third party. That's a very practical means of reconciliation in all of our disagreements and conflicts. Maybe for you, it's a, your missional community group leader. Maybe it's just a godly person you know who loves the Lord. Maybe it's an older Christian couple. Maybe it's a biblical counselor. 
Maybe it's a deacon. Maybe it's a pastor. Maybe it's an elder. The two sides can't agree, but when they call in the mediator, they meet with that person and they, they need to agree at that point on two things. One, that they will, one, that they will both meet, right? We'll both sit in the same room. Now, sometimes people refuse to even meet. They refuse to even work towards unity. That's a different sermon. <laughs> sermon part two, right? Part one, you have to agree to meet with this mediator, with this helper. And then secondly, when you meet, you agree to submit yourselves to the mediator. Let that person call balls and strikes, so to speak, and see what is true and see what is false. And then the mediator hears both sides and uses his or her wisdom and spirit-led prayerful discretion to help resolve the disagreement. So let me say something really, really practical. Two things. First, in my opinion, our elders and leaders are excellent counselors and mediators of conflict. They're all very gifted in this area and very um, helpful. And I know that both by experience and by observing them in these situations. And so I want to encourage you, if you are in disruptive disagreement or conflict with another brother or sister in your life, to get with one of the elders of our church. Have them sit down with you. They are extremely helpful and gifted. And that's, that's our job as elders. That's part of what it means to shepherd you. Secondly, I want to just make a note, which I like to do as often as possible, of the importance of biblical counseling. Listen, I've been in a lot of, not a lot, I've been in counseling in my life from time to time in harder seasons. And it's one of the most important ways that God has helped me to grow in grace, both in my marriage and my understanding of my own identity in other relationships. Counseling is not for those who are in crisis mode only. Counseling is for those who just need some help. And by the way, that's all of you. That's all of you. One of the first and most important steps in conflict resolution in dealing with disagreements is by humbling yourself enough to say, I need help. Elders are there for that. Counselors are there for that. Every one of you should make use of wise counsel when needed. Ask me for recommendations. I'm happy to help you with that. So four things Paul does. The first, he's even-handed. The second, he calls for a mediator. Third, He reminds them that God is near, okay? Look in verse 5. He says, the Lord is at hand. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus is about to come back. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that Jesus is currently and constantly present in our lives through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He's near. What are we to take from that? Well, listen, remember, remember this. When you are in a disagreement... When you have disruptive conflict, God is close by you. God is near to you. God is near to those who call on him. He is present. He's willing to help. God loves to help you. He wants you to move out of your anger and your bitterness and your inability to forgive that person. He cares about you. He cares about this situation. And he will hear your prayers when you come to him. Isn't that good news? The Lord is at hand. He is a resource for you in the middle of disputes, in the middle of disagreements, in the middle of conflicts. And I know that there's, I know that there's sometimes in our lives where we're like, I don't even want to forgive that person. I'm done. I'm just sick of it. Listen, that is the moment in which you should go to the Lord. Ken Sandy, in his, uh, one of his books called The Peacemaker, I think imita- he he summarizes that idea very well. He he says that sometimes our prayer is just going to be something like this. Listen to this. 
God, I cannot forgive him in my own strength. In fact, I don't want to forgive him, at least until he has suffered for what he did to me. He does not deserve to get off easy. Everything in me wants to hold it against him and keep a high wall between us so he can never hurt me again. But your word warns me that unforgiveness will eat away at my soul and build a wall between you and me. Please change my heart and soften it so that I no longer want to hold this against him. You know, a lot of us at times just get to the point where that's about all we can pray. And you know what? It's helpful to be honest with God. It's good. It's good for you to say, you know what, God? I hear Pastor Luke right now, but I would rather hold this grudge. So thanks. But I know that I know that your word tells me that's bad. Help me. God's near to those who call on him in truth. Last thing. He calls them in dealing with disagreement and practicing reconciliation to remember and to believe in the gospel. Now, this is seen in all kinds of ways. Look in verse 2. I entreat Euodia, I entreat Syntyche to agree, but to agree what? In the Lord. In other words, your more fundamental identity and relationship is grounded in your common union with Jesus by faith. He's brought you into his family by grace. He's forgiven you. Remember that and agree in the Lord. He says that they've labored with them, him in the gospel. He reminds them of their past ministry. He tells them their names are in the book of life. He's not saying you're going to go to hell because of your bad attitude here. He's saying, remember how much God loves you. Remember, he's rescued you from death and from plight. Your names are written in the book of life. Live like it. He tells them to rejoice, and then he repeats it. Again, I say rejoice because he knows that when we're in disruptive disagreement, we don't want to rejoice. We want to get bitter and fester and simmer. He's saying that this conflict, this disagreement, and all of our disagreements are merely opportunities for us to bring glory to God. And to grow in our love for Jesus and our faith in the gospel. Really what Paul's saying is this. Christians are the most forgiven people on the planet. Christians, if you're not a Christian, you've got to hear this. Christians are not people that have pulled their stuff together. So that they're now acceptable to God and to one another. Christians are people who know how much of a mess they are. And rejoice in God's gracious, merciful, abounding forgiveness. Do you believe that? If you believe that's for you, if you believe that's true, then you have no right to do to another person what God refuses to do to you, and that is hold a grudge. That is persist in disruptive disagreement. Listen to what the scripture says. Jesus says, I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. God says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Psalm 130, if you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? Rhetorical question. The answer is none of us, right? But with you, verse 3, there is forgiveness. 1 Corinthians 13, love keeps no record of wrongs. In all of our conflicts, in all of our disagreements, and in all of our struggles to move through them, God calls us and also helps us to remember how much we have been forgiven. That's what God's really like, you see. God is compassionate. God is gracious. God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He doesn't treat us according to what our rebellion deserves. That's how great his love is for us. It's as high as the heavens are above the earth. I love this quote from Pat Morrison. 
He writes, we are not called to forgive others and restore fellowship with them in order to earn God's love. Rather, having experienced his love, we have the basis and motive to forgive others. Okay, so summarizing, Paul calls these two women to move past their disagreement and agree in the Lord. He wants them to re-engage in God's mission in Philippi. And in so doing, we learn so much about ourselves, right? We learn about our own propensity towards disruptive disagreement with other Christians. And we learn how the gospel changes the way we handle disagreements. Close with this. I've seen this modeled on multiple occasions in my life, but one of the things that comes to mind initially was at a prior church that I served at as a pastor. Um, I was in a, a, a session meeting, a meeting of the elders in that church, and typically these meetings went really, really well. But in this particular instance, a very, very controversial hot-button issue arose. And there's like six, seven men in the room. And I tell you what, I'm not going to tell you what the issue was. You just need to know. Just like Paul doesn't tell you. I'm not telling you either. It got, it got heated. Screams were, you know, it was, there was screaming. There were red faces. There were mean, nasty things said. There was a lot of anger. A lot. And uh, that was on a Thursday night. And everyone left that meeting just sort of shell-shocked and disheveled internally and externally. And I remember that Sunday morning, I came for worship early and got there. And one of the main elders who uh, had been a part of that, he had founded this church, had helped found the church, had been a part of the church from the very beginning. He had called everyone else to him, the whole session, all the pastors. And he had said, listen, guys, I haven't slept in two days. And I want you to, I want to tell you that I still have a particular perspective on this issue, but I acted in sin and it was wrong. And I would beg your forgiveness and ask that you would forgive me for losing my patience, for losing my cool, for making a non-essential issue ultimate in that meeting. Please forgive me. I'm sorry. And I tell you what, it defused, defused the whole situation defused the awkwardness. It defused the pain. It defused all of the questions about, well, what are we going to do now? And we were able to move forward together in the mission of God. It's a beautiful thing when through faith in Jesus, we can move forward in disruptive disagreements. May it be the case with us too. Let's pray.